to episode 214 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today I'm joined by Mariah Fredericks to talk about Death of a Showman, the fourth installment of her series featuring ladies' maid Jane Prescott. It's always great to talk to Mariah, and we have to mention that she was recently nominated for an Edgar Award. Someone else got it, but it is an honor to be nominated. So I want to thank you for joining the podcast again, Edgar nominee. Oh, thank you so much, Nancy. This is one of my favorite uh, times of the whole launch process is talking with you. That is really nice of you to say. And you said very kind things about uh, the podcast on Twitter, which is really appreciated. So thank you for that as well. The story of Death of a Showman opens, as all of your series has done, with advanced years, Jane Prescott. Mm-hmm. In this book, she's intending the musical Cats. <laughs> and the story in Death of a Showman deals with Broadway on the cusp of World War I. Uh, and it, it occurred to me that Broadway was both a very different place and very much the same in, <laughs> between 1914. And I would guess Cats opened in the late 80s. Uh, early 80s. It was, early 80s. Uh, nine, it was uh, 1980 or 81. I can't remember, but yeah. So yeah. I know you spoke in your, in your acknowledgments uh, about the research. So I thought that might be an interesting place to, to start the podcast because you uh, did a tremendous amount of research on theaters. Well, I'm lucky that I live in New York and I grew up two miles from Broadway um, at a time when you could get orchestra seats for $13, if you can believe it. Um, And standing room was really cheap. So as a kid, I saw an enormous amount of theater. Like I saw Sweeney Todd four times, um, which seems unthinkable now. Um, and I was always at the Lincoln Center has a library that's dedicated exclusively to the performing arts, whether it's music, theater, or film. Um, and I spent a lot of time there. So all of this was basically a fabulous excuse to just go back and revisit all my adolescent obsessions. Um, You know, when I was growing up, it was like Rodgers and Hammerstein was sort of the gold standard, you know, with Sound of Music. Um, And then you had, you know, West Side Story and, you know, the Labor Song Time works. But I didn't know that much about Broadway, which was sort of just starting to be called Broadway. I had to Google whether or not, like, it was referred to as Broadway at the time, even though the theater district had moved to the Times Square area. So finding out about what a musical entertainment looked like at this time was really, really fascinating. It's an amazing time with, you know, the Barrymores and Vernon and Irene Castle and Fanny Bryce, and you've got Ziegfeld doing his thing, um, and an enormous amount of exciting talent and real change going on. Exactly. They had, there was a segue 
from the sort of vaudeville um, series of acts, and and you touch on that slightly in your book, the introduction of of shtick, <laughs> uh, to the the idea of more legitimate theater as as an entertainment. Not to say that there hadn't always been. Uh, Shakespeare had been produced in New York. So it, it's, it is an interesting time. And, and uh, I, you know, my personal preferences, I can't help but think that some of it is influenced by the emerging uh, medium of motion pictures. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, one of the characters goes off to make their fortune in movies at the end, so. Not, you know, which is a little like uh, what Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks did. They both started on the stage and were in New York before they left to become uh, the power couple of Hollywood. So right. anyway, back to back to Death of a Showman, uh, you know, and we'll talk about which showman and how he died. So many of the characters in Jane's circles of acquaintance of employment uh, and her friends are back. Uh, Louise Tyler, for whom Jane works as a lady's maid. Louise's husband, William, although he's not as prominent in this book. Uh, Newspaper Michael Behan is back, still balancing his obvious affection for Jane and her proximity to news that will help him get inches in the paper and maybe even a byline. And Leo Hirschfeld, with whom Jane shared a few dances and kisses, is front and center, and which is a place I realize he relishes. So <laughs> yeah, talk a little about the story and, and maybe a few words about the showman who has gone unmentioned, his name is, and what the heck is Louise up to? Well, good question. Um, originally, for you know, the series progresses year by year, and this year is 1914. And originally, I had planned to have the Tylers and Jane in Vienna for this book, um, attending Louise's sister's glittering wedding to a Hungarian count. Um, but more and more, I thought it actually made sense for our young Americans to be in New York at the time and to have the the brewing world war, sort of something that's happening over there. Um, and that we would be sort of heedless and happy and um, caught up in sort of more lighthearted things. And that brought me immediately to Leo and dancing and romance and uh, Broadway success and very determined ambition. So um, it was, I got to go back to Leo a little, he was always going to come back, but he came back a little faster um, than I had planned because as you say, he does like to be front and center. Um, so Louise gets, Caught, Leo appears at the Tyler house just as they have come back from Europe and charms Louise into coming into um, a rehearsal. And Louise immediately gets the theater bug, as so many of us did. Um, but Leo has an ulterior motive. Um, the man who gave him uh, his first broadcast 
Broadway show, the producer, Sidney Warburton, uh, who owns the theater, is a complete monster and very controlling. And Leo is looking for sort of a counterweight um, to his power. So um, as always with Leo, he has a little bit of an agenda. Um, but uh, it works out wonderfully for Louise, I think. Um, and not so not so wonderfully for the producer, however. No, Sydney Warburg, I think I'm trying to think of it. I haven't written a character this dislikable since Nori Newsome, who was the cad who dies in the first book, No Importance. And you know, it's an old joke, everybody wants to kill the producer. But I thought, you know, we're also living through a time when people are really looking at men in power in the entertainment industry and how abusive they've been and how much they exploit their ability to give work that so many people desperately, desperately want. So I thought it was a good time to tell, to make that character a murder victim. Well, I, I guess as as you said, sometimes people just deserve deserve their fate. Fictional, fictional, I should add. Fictional. fictional. So, in my head, uh, I often, you know, I'm a former magazine person. So, in my head, I often give books uh, decks or or subtitles. And for Death of a Showman, uh, it was Jane gets cranky <laughs> because while she was patient to a fault at least to the outside world in the first three books. This time around, she seems a bit chippy. She's just come back from the extended trip to Europe that you mentioned. Her patience is tried with her employers. And, you know, is this, I was wondering though, a uh, little bit is, <clears throat> is this a case of how are you going to keep them down on the farm after they story, uh. which I know hadn't quite been written at the time, or just, part of Jane's evolution because she she's very cranky with uh, Leo who has broken her heart. Yes, but she's not admitting that, which is <laughs> no Jane. No Jane, not admitting that. Um you know my book four I felt like Jane had built up enough goodwill that I could start growing the character a little bit. And I think we really only grow when we make mistakes um, and when we take some risks. And so I wanted her to get emotionally caught up and to occasionally do some things that she herself would not necessarily be proud of um, and to wrestle with feelings that she hasn't really allowed herself to wrestle with. Um, she doesn't like being dependent on people. And, and it's not just Leo. I mean, her dynamic with Louise is shifting as well as Louise steps out in the world and finds her own sort of sense of self. She's not as dependent on Jane anymore emotionally or um, in other ways. And I think that that is a little unnerving to Jane. Um, and she is, I mean, one, one thing that I remembered um, writing this book is at one point she and Emma had her friend who was an anarchist and who is a believer in 
violence as a way to advance, you know, the human condition. Um, it's regrettable, but it has to happen. At one point, they're having an argument about murder and some of that chippiness that you're referring to or bad tempered does kind of surface. And I remembered in the last book, American Beauty, Jane herself was physically attacked. And I think that gives her a different investment um, when it comes to talking about um, the impact of violence on people. So, you know, I think she's growing and I think growth is painful in some ways. And I, you know, I, I don't think you harp on themes, but you did mention that she was attacked in Death of American Beauty and Death of an American Beauty was very much about, uh, you know, how men have exploited women. I mean, this is absolutely nothing new in 1913, 1914, or 2021. The only difference is there's a little bit more press about it, a little bit more talking about it. but. I, although that, that wasn't as prominent in this book, it was very much there. Uh, mm -hmm. The producer is a pig. There's, I'm sorry. You've, <laughs> I love your books. I love your characters, but the producer, you do, you do a good pig. I got to oh, say. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. And it's, I don't think it was in any way, uh, exaggerated his 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 sanctimoniousness about his family his uh ways of of seduction and holding out the promises of employment to women his contempt for uh the one woman that he marries off to someone else to leo as a sort of as, as a prize or a you know, to get her out of yeah. the way. It's, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a contemptible and familiar thing. And so, you know, and also you talked about Anna, who, who is not as prominent, although I found the argument that she has with Jane really telling because, and I should shut up and let you talk, but it was a very, very violent, it was a very violent time the middle part of that, of that decade. Um, bombs were the, were the weapon of choice for anarchists. They blew up Wall Street. They yeah. blew up parades uh, in Chicago and in San Francisco. They bombed a newspaper in Los Angeles in 1910. It was the thing. Right, right. I mean, I was, I was remembering when I first saw Reds. Do you remember that movie? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Maureen Stapleton is so wonderful as Emma Goldman. And there's that line where Jack Reed says to her, oh, I'll walk you home, E.G. And she says, why? I'm not going to hurt anybody. And you laugh. <laughs> and I recently heard her compared to my, my congresswoman, AOC. And I thought, well, if AOC's partner had gotten into Jeff Bezos's office and taken several shots with him at him and nearly succeeded in killing him with AOC's knowledge and cooperation, then yeah, it might be somewhat similar. And I mean, which is not to say that 
Emma Goldman isn't an admirable person, but as you say, like, violence was much more, people felt the stakes were so high and the, the possibility of change was so remote that unless you committed violence, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and, and I think even in the insulation of, of the United States, some of the, the political movements that were roiling Europe, uh, the, the communist revolution, had the Bolshevik revolution had not <clears throat> happened in Russia yet, but it was fermenting. The revolution in Ireland, which <clears throat> might even be a little bit closer to home for many of the residents of New York was was roiling. Was was that sort of history part of what you were thinking of as you were writing this though? To the, the counterpoint of Broadway and fantasy against the reality and what was building up and what was going to happen. Yes, I mean I think that tension, the hope is that that tension is present in all of the books, but I think in Showman, the fantasy takes um, more of a center role. Like in American Beauty, you have the department store and all that glitz and luxury as compared to what's happening to the women on the Lower East Side. So um, I always want to give a sense of a world that's marching to a slaughterhouse, basically. And then it's fun and it's lovely and it's lively um, and very dynamic and creative. And that, you know, this bloodshed is, is coming right around the corner. I mean, you mentioned events in Ireland. I'm hoping to bring that in in the 1916 book. I mean, that all that the violence that they think of is happening over there is, it is coming here and it will make itself felt. So this is, uh, this is the second book that you have released in pandemic times. I know we're emerging. Um, <clears throat> you were so busy in April, we couldn't have, we couldn't have time. So I think, I think that that's very interesting. Because last year when you launched Death of an American Beauty, all of your book signings at physical brick and mortars had been canceled. Yeah. And this time around, they didn't even bother to schedule them. Uh, you were on many, many, I, and I watched a few of them, many panels and interviews, and you were caught up in, in the Edgar Awards, which were also uh, virtual. And then I read... Uh, piece in Publishers Weekly about how the idea of book tours and the idea of, of, you know, in real life book signings might, we might be evolving away from that. And I know that you had very engaging, I never got the opportunity to go to one, but I know that you had very engaging book signings. And so as a writer who's now firmly and we'll we'll talk about uh, you mentioned your book for 1916 and we'll talk about your your next book in a second but i thought this would be a nice time to talk about as a writer with a series with a very devoted following what you know what does this mean to you as as a as a writer who engages with her readers 
Well, in some ways, like technology is fabulous. I'm having a wonderful back and forth with a reader in Florida um, who keeps asking me questions and she keeps saying, oh, is it okay that I'm asking? I was like, I love talking to readers. This is great. Um, it is, and I would never have probably done foxtail books in Georgia and and that was just a total joy. I mean, it was a wonderful way to meet readers that I probably would not have traveled to meet um, under the old circumstances. So in that way, Zoom has been wonderful. Um, I think people are always going to want to meet authors or have a chance to converse with them face to face. I mean, I don't know if like, people are always going to want to meet Lee Child. I mean, you know, there are just certain, you know, mega stars that um, people are excited to be in a room with. But yeah, Zoom has been, I mean, both as a viewer, there's so much I've gotten to see and engage with that I wouldn't have been able to. Um, and as an author, uh, it has given me a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, when I read the public, you know, I have been contemplating uh, ending the podcast and I'll, I'll explain why. Uh, one of the reasons is I have watched so many uh, of the live uh, author events. I watched uh, Bloody Scotland remotely. I think the idea of the writers conferences and, you know, the you know, like Theakston's Bloody Scotland, um, BoucherCon, all of these wonderful, wonderful gatherings are going to be forever changed. They will be in real life again. Yeah. I think but I think there is going to be an interactive element that opens them up to the rest of the world. And I think that that is a wonderful thing. I can't go to Sterling, Scotland every year. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and writers from all over the world can't participate at, in Sterling or wherever BoucherCon is located that particular year or Left Coast Crime or any number of these festivals all over the world. Um, I decided not to end the podcast, though, because of that article. I thought to myself, one of the things I always wanted to replicate was the experience of uh, the of a Q&A with a writer at, at a, a book event. So uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you keep it going. Well, really thank you very much. The, you know, the, the pandemic was very, very good to the podcast as it was to many podcasts, but we'll see what happens as, as we go on. Anyway, I have, I have shelved that idea for now. So we talked about the Harbingers that, that were in your book, the, the reading of the headlines uh, that were leading up to uh, World War One, or as they called it then, the Great War. Uh, Jane had seen some of these undercurrents when she was in Europe, that just previous. So, so let's talk about 1915 and the fifth Jane Prescott novel, because uh, you've mentioned 1916, so I'm assuming <laughs> there's another one. and and. The second part of my question is uh, is influenced by my interview with Charles Finch when we talked about his three-volume prequel for his character. Oh. 
so are there any thoughts on a Jane Prescott, Jane Prescott prequel? Or have you thought about a standalone and made your publisher pull his or her hair out? Well, you know, interestingly, the next, I'm working on two next books, but the first one that's going to come out is a standalone. Um, and it's based on, it's a true crime novel about the Lindbergh kidnapping told from the point of view of Betty Gow, who was his nanny and who became a prime suspect, as did her boyfriend. Um, so that will be the next book to come out. Um, and that's presented a whole different range of pleasures and challenges and all of that. Um, but for Jane, um, I also have um, several chapters of that one written. And you mentioned that William is not so prominent um, in this book. And unfortunately, I give him sort of the role of like the tisking husband. And I thought, oh, poor William. <laughs> He's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. He's a very nice guy. And I thought he really deserved better from me than that. And um, so, and he didn't have a big role in, in beauty. So I thought it was time to bring William back. And Louise, um, for various reasons I won't discuss, um, doesn't need Jane as much um, in, the, in the next book. So William strikes out on his own to open his own uh, law firm. And he is tremendously idealistic. And he asks Jane to be his um, secretary because at the end of Showman, he and Louise decide they want to send Jane to night school. Um, and um, so they open uh, their offices and it's complete crickets. And then finally an old friend of his who comes from a notable family that runs one of the you know, notable newspapers of New York says, my family is being blackmailed um, would you look into it? You're, you're such a good fellow. And it's sort of like, you know, it, it, it will stay between us, the, you know. And it turns out that what this man is blackmailing the family about is an explosion at one of their printing presses that killed Michael Bean's father many years ago. And it looks like murder. And Jane and William get involved finding out what happened then. Um, the man who was blackmailing the family is murdered. What happened to him? And Jane starts digging into the BM family history. And Michael is actually very displeased by this. <laughs> um, so, um, but it's sort of a turning point book in the series. So I want to take my time with it. So the standalone will come out first. Well, even though it's true crime, I hope you'll talk to us. Of course. Well, it's, it's a novel. It is truly oh, a mystery. novelized. Okay. It's novelized because always the question was the Lindbergh family, the night of the kidnapping, was in a house that was still under construction and they were never there on a Tuesday. So the assumption has always been one of the staff in their house or her mother's house gave the tip off to the kidnapper. Well, it's it's one of those stories that America has remained fascinated with, and I'm sure it will be 
fascinating read. And I always look forward to catching up with Jane. So maybe I'll get a chance to talk to you twice. Oh, well, that would be wonderful. And once again, thank you for your time. Thank you for talking to us and uh, for joining the podcast and for writing this wonderful series because it is, it's a great series. It's historical and, and, but not cloying. I really enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you.